Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your host, Gary, to tell you about cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. What's that for? Well, you keep saying I shouldn't always say that I'm joined by Golding Ann, so I thought I would skip that. Oh, very funny. Yeah. But since you <laughs> gave it away, uh, everyone welcome my wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. How are you, Goldie Ann? I'm okay. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. And I'm also so excited for October 28th and our appearance at Diane's Tea Room in Kissimmee, Florida. From 6 to 8 p.m., we will be enjoying a perfect fall meal while I present some of the spookiest ghost stories for the attendees. I will have a link to this October holiday tree in our show notes, and I recommend you make reservations as soon as possible. I hear it sells out. It is not a large restaurant, so yes, it can sell out very quickly. But first, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back. So, Goldie Ann, do you ever think that invisible airplanes will ever be a thing? Um, isn't there one in, like, oh, what was that old cartoon? Wonder Woman? No. I was thinking, ah, never mind. I can't remember the name of it. It's like Johnny something. Johnny Quest? Yeah. Johnny Quest did not have an invisible airplane. Oh. They had a regular airplane. Oh. It was the Wonder Woman who had an invisible plane. But do you ever think invisible airplanes could ever actually be a real thing? Of course. No, I really don't. Well, personally, I can't see them taking off. Ha, 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 ha. Thought you were asking me a real question. I, I saw that. I didn't know how to respond, so I kind of let you go with it. Uh-huh. Well... Today's story involves a disappearance and unexplained death. These events may be upsetting to some of our listeners. We are storytellers who tell you tales about some of our beloved creatures of the night. We don't intend to scare you. Well, actually we do, a little. Listener discretion is always advised. Changed it again. And we open... With the sun beginning to dip below the horizon on Christmas Eve of 1975, Peter Gibbs boards his single-engine airplane for a short flight. A few hours later, when complete darkness has blanketed the landscape, he still has not returned, and it appears that something has gone terribly wrong. The following day saw countless search-and-rescue ships and aircrafts comb the seas around the Isle of Mool. At the same time, volunteers from the neighboring towns and villages swarmed the hills to find any trace of the missing plane or its pilot. But they returned home empty-handed each evening, without any clues as to what had happened to both man and machine. Four months after his mysterious disappearance, Peter's body is found. His skin is pale and clammy to the touch. His eyes are glazed over, but the circumstances of his death seem baffling and do not explain what had happened to him. 
It seemed impossible that anything natural could have inflicted such a fate on him or his missing plane. A legion of investigators have devoted countless hours to studying this mysterious case. Yet, the answers remain elusive and contradictory. Despite decades of research, the mystery still elicits heated debates between experts with no real answers in sight. Join us today as we enter the skies within the mists off the coast of Scotland to present the Mole Area Mystery. Hmm. I've never heard of this. Sounds cool. I thought you might enjoy this because it's a little bit more of a true crime or mystery than actual paranormal. Yeah. But there are some paranormal twists, so we'll begin with Chapter 1, A Man of Adventure. The Howitt family's Glenforsa Hotel was destroyed by a fire in 1968, but was replaced in 1969 with one building and chalets constructed from wood designed to emulate the architecture of Scandinavia. One of the hotel's most unusual features is its grass landing strip. The airstrip, built in 1965, was initially designated for airlifting medical emergencies off of the Isle of Mole. The airfield does not receive much use or upkeep. In fact, in over five decades since its completion, on average, only one patient per year has been evacuated via this airstrip. That's a good thing. Yes, but I just want to make sure everyone realizes that this is not a well-used air, airstrip. Okay. In fact, the Glareforsa airstrip is relatively primitive compared to other commercial airports. There's no control tower, no radar, there's not even runway lights, and there isn't even a hangar to keep your planes. The hotel staff does have access to an aviation frequency radios, but that is the only hint of modernity. Interesting. It's only used for VFRs, which means visual flight rules flying. So planes are not supposed to take off or land in bad weather or dark conditions. That's pretty smart. Yes, keep that in mind. Because on Christmas Eve of 1975, an unusual sight graced the landing strip that day. Two guests arrived by plane, and this would lead to one of the strangest events in modern history. Norman Peter Gibbs, known to most as Peter, had arrived at the Glenforsa airstrip. He was accompanied by his partner, Felicity Granger, who had formerly been a college professor. Peter managed the Gibbs and Ray, which is a real estate firm, and he had come to the area to scan for properties on the island of Skye. Furthermore, he anticipated celebrating his 54th birthday at the Glenforsa Hotel on Christmas Day. So, another Christmas baby, much like you. Yeah. Gibbs arrived in a Cessna F-150H, Registration number G-AVTN, with the call sign Tango November. Now, this aircraft wasn't outfitted with a navigation and communication radio, but because of its size and its flying capabilities, it did not include parachutes. Oh. Great. Well, it was meant for short hopping along the islands off the, 
off the coast of Scotland, so it really wasn't planned for needing parachutes. On December 23rd, Gibbs and Granger had flown from North Connell Airfield near Oban to Glenforsa. This was only a 10-minute journey, and they stayed overnight at the hotel. On December 24th, they traveled to view properties before returning to Glenforsa in the afternoon. Gibbs was an experienced aviator with over 2,000 hours in the air. He had served as a fighter pilot flying Spitfires in the 41st Squadron of the Royal Air Force during World War II. Cool. And he continued flying planes even after the war. On this flight, he didn't tell anyone that his pilot's license had expired when he hired the Cessna. Oops. Peter kind of had that attitude that you kind of trusted him. You know, he had that World War II pilot bravado. And additionally, when Gibbs had taken his latest general flying test, the medical examiner stipulated that he must wear glasses while flying. Despite this requirement, Granger, who had flown with him numerous times, declared she never saw him lift off with glasses on. He was recognized for being outspoken, self-confident, and a risk-taker. In fact, on one occasion, he released a bag of live grasshoppers during a show at the Philharmonia. And another time, he quote-unquote bombed the London Symphony Orchestra with flower bags thrown from his aircraft. Jonathan Harvey, a BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra associate, remembered Gibbs' flying expertise, saying, quote, He remained passionately devoted to flying and often took his plane to engagements. He rarely bothered with a map, but he would dive down to read the road signs. <laughs> he showed a lofty disregard for aviation laws and sometimes flying under bridges and etc. So hopefully you get an idea of what kind of man Peter was. It was fun. He was very much fun. And in addition to being a pilot, Gibbs was also a professional musician. His talent was displayed throughout plays in various orchestras around the world. As a talented violinist, he modified his airplane to accommodate his musical instrument in the luggage compartment. By 1975, Gibbs had retired from the music business and was now entered into the property development. He was interested in purchasing his own hotel in Scotland Highlands and was particularly keen on the airstrip at Glenforsa. He discussed the possibility of owning a hotel with its own attached land strip, just like the Glenforsa. He viewed it as a possible money-making venture. I take it he makes too many bad choices, though. Are you talking about in general or in yeah, this situation? in general. He seems well, like... Well, if you're flying under bridges and you're flying when you're supposed to be having glasses on, yeah, you're a risk taker. Now, on the evening of Christmas Eve, Gibbs and Granger dined at the Glenforsa Hotel. After dinner, at 9 o'clock that evening, Gibbs announced to everyone that he was planning to go up in his plane and excused himself to change into his flight suit and helmet. When he returned to the bar, hotel staffers had tried unsuccessfully to talk him out of it. The evening sky was pitch black without a hint of moonlight. The winds were calm, 
but the weather report warned of an impending storm coming within the hour. To make matters worse, please remember that the landing strip had no lights for nighttime operations. Peter would have to operate it in the dark. This did not deter Gibbs, who quickly made it clear he wasn't asking for permission to take to the skies. Oh, boy. Instead, he was being polite and informed them of his plans. Polite. Well, he boasted of his familiarity with night flying acquired in the Royal Air Force. He mentioned that Granger would be helping him mark out a makeshift runway with lights. He expressed interest in seeing if taking off and landing at night was feasible, as this might make his hotel landing strip even more of a draw. He told the staff and Granger that he only planned on one short circuit lasting about five minutes or less before he would return. The airstrip at Glenforsa usually saw no activity after sundown except for an emergency medical evacuation flights. And even then, they used a string of car headlights to light the runway. That's a good idea. Well, it's a good idea that Peter didn't utilize on this night. Yeah. Gibbs was determined to fly, and he and Granger made their way to his airplane. I feel like this isn't going to end well. Well, we wouldn't be talking about it if it did. Oh, good point. Yeah. Tim Howitt, the hotel manager, anxiously watched Gibbs revving up the plane on this strip. The engine sound alerted David, Tim's brother, and his wife Pauline. They saw Gibbs getting ready for takeoff from one of their wooden chalets nearby. The plane rolled to a stop at the end of the runway, and Granger hopped out of the passenger seat. She quickly placed two flashlights on the ground. <laughs> this was to act as a makeshift landing lights for Gibbs to land safely after his flight was complete. At 9.30 p.m., the plane became airborne and banked northward. It flew over the Sound of Mole and then shifted its course until it passed eastbound. Then, according to the plan, the craft should have angled southwards. The hotel inhabitants had dimmed the lights of the hotel to make it easier for them to see out into the night and watch the plane. But less for him to see the hotel with the lights. This is true. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Worse, worse, due to a blocking line of trees, those in the hotel lost sight of the aircraft's navigation lights. This would prove to be the last anyone saw of the plane. Not long after his takeoffs, some folks exiting a religious ceremony in Oban which was located just a few minutes of air travel from Glenforsa, were shocked when they heard the sound of a small plane soaring through the sky above them. By 10 p.m., Granger, still waiting on the tarmac, was getting anxious. Gibbs had mentioned the flight would only take a few minutes, and now a half hour had already passed. Ever since he left, the wind picked up its pace. Gusts were now blowing clouds in from the west, and heavy sleet was beginning to pour down. Granger made her way back to the hotel and informed the staff that Gibbs had yet to return from his flight. 
The hotel staff hurriedly dialed the police, and David Howitt took the hotel's car, a Ford Cortina, to the Pennygown Cemetery nearby. When he arrived at his destination, he pointed his headlights towards the water beyond the runway. He thought Gibbs might have approached the runway too low and crashed into the ocean. He kept his lights on the water looking for Peter's plane, and he had a radio with aviation frequencies, but received no message from Gibbs. He did pick up an RAF plane transmission showing that the radio was working even in this awful weather conditions. So the silence from Peter was more ominous. When Howitt came up empty searching for Gibbs in the rough water, he returned to the hotel. As they waited for the law enforcement to arrive, Granger mentioned that Gibbs had told her with some bravado before taking off that if something went wrong, he would just shut off the engine and jump out of the aircraft. <laughs> the following day, an extensive search mission began involving the Air and Sea Rescue Services. Due to that strong storm lasting more than three days, their efforts could have been improved, but were unsuccessful. Royal Air Force and Royal Navy helicopters searched the island and the nearby waters from locations in Preswick and Luchers. The police mountain rescue unit from Dunoon scoured the hills and the locks of Mull. Local shepherds and forestry workers joined in by looking for any sign of the plane wreckage. After two weeks of searching, no trace of Peter Gibbs or his aircraft was found, and it was assumed that he had gone down into the ocean. Chapter 3. A Man of Mystery uh At first, it seemed like the matter was settled, but a strange twist came to light four months later. On April 21, 1976, Donald McKeenan was tending to his flock when he made the shocking discovery on a hill overlooking the Sound of Mall and the Pentagon Cemetery. There was a body lying face up across a larch log. Upon seeing it, David Howitt from the Glenforce Hotel recognized the clothes and the flying boots that Peter Gibbs had been wearing when he vanished. The corpse was taken for forensic examinations to confirm its identity, which was done thanks to the dental records. Dr. W.D.S. McClay, chief medical officer of the Strathclyde Police, conducted a detailed and thorough examination of the body, but he received perplexing results. The toxicology test returned negative, and there was only one injury on the body a small three-inch superficial cut on his right leg. No other marks or injuries would suggest that a person had been involved in an accident or had jumped or fallen from an aircraft. Interesting. Correct. No broken bones, no bruising, just one three-inch cut. But was it the guy? Yes. Due to the dental records, he was able to confirm that this was Peter Gibbs. But there was no evidence of what caused his death, so it was speculated that he had perished from exposure. Examiners also took samples of the clothing and his boots in search of signs of salt water from potential immersion into the ocean. 
they found nothing. There was no indication that he had been in the seawater. Hmm. An inquiry occurred in Aban on June 24th of 1976. This investigation and subsequent news coverage of the case unearthed some peculiar facts. Donald McKinnon, the shepherd responsible for locating the body, was adamant that he and his dog had been in that exact spot after Gibbs went missing. But they had not seen any body or anything until the date of his discovery. Additionally, mountain rescue teams had combed the entire area. Remember, this is just an island while they were searching for Gibbs. Yet they had seen nothing. The body seemed to have just appeared. The locals were also astounded by the condition of Gibbs' body, which was still in one piece when it was found. Typically, bodies, both human and animal, discovered in Scotland Hills are always severely damaged due to the scavenging animals. Yet, somehow, this did not occur with Gibbs. So over four months, no animals chewed on his body. There was no damage to him after his corpse had been found. That's weird. The locals thought so, too. Now, because of the evidence, some people assumed that the corpse had been kept somewhere else and had been left where it was discovered much later after his death. <laughs> Going back to the aliens. Now, when questioned about these findings, the medical examiner could only confirm, quote, the state of the body was fully in line with it having lain there for four months. So the argument is that a body that wasn't there appeared four months later, showing decay of four months, not showing any scavengers for four months, and not showing any injuries of how he got out of the plane. David and Pauline Howitt also added to the testimony that before Gibbs's plane took off, they saw four flashlights moving at the end of the runway. Ha! See? See what? Aliens. So alien flashlights? Alien lights. Well, this also could mean that there was someone else on the airstrip. Granger claimed that she handled two flashlights alone. And meanwhile, the Howitz also saw a flare on the sound of moles shortly after takeoff. So more of your alien lights. There you go. They watched the light for about 20 seconds through their binoculars before it vanished. No one else reported witnessing this flare and knew whether it was associated with Gibbs' disappearance or not. The medical examiner was asked in detail why there wasn't any proof that Gibbs had been submerged in salt water. The examiner conceded that exposure to the Scottish weather, including rain and snow over the four months, might have eliminated every trace of it. But most people don't tend to believe that. He couldn't guarantee it had actually occurred in this manner. The fatal accident inquiry needed help understanding the situation. However, they eventually claimed that Gibbs most likely crashed his Cessna into the waters on the Sound of Mole on the way to the runway. But it was unclear if this was due to an engine failure or some other technical issue or because he was confused about where he was going. 
They also stated that he supposedly swam to the shore, scrambled out of the water near Pentagon Cemetery, where Howitt had parked his car and flashed his lights, and he was disoriented, entirely spent from swimming, and already starting to feel the signs of hypothermia. Though he yielded to exhaustion, he really could have reached the Glenforsa Hotel by simply crossing the road before him, as if he kept going. He wasn't very far. Instead, he forced himself to climb up a hill until he succumbed to the cold and fatigue and died laying over a log. Also, for some unexplained reason, he had no wounds from the crash, no salt water in his clothing, and his body was not discovered for four months, even though multiple search parties and a shepherd passed that area numerous times and never noticed his body. In the end, Gibbs was buried in Oban in June of 1976. But the mystery continued. Yeah. On October 5th of 1976, Robert Duncan, a nearby farmer, discovered a tire and inner tube on the shore near Glenforsa. The make of the tire was consistent with those fitted to a Cessna 150 plane, but there's no way to tell if it belonged to Gibbs G-AVTN. In September of 1986, George Foster, a diver employed to find scallops in the water off the Sound of Mole, recorded locating the remains of an aircraft roughly 500 meters away from the shore. Could this have been Gibbs's plane? The wreckage was slightly east of the end of Glenforsa runway and was submerged at a depth of around 100 feet. Again, why wasn't it found before this? Foster explored the wreckage beneath the waves and noticed the wings and the engine were missing, while both cockpit doors remained sealed and closed. He also saw that the windscreen had been totally demolished. Could Gibbs have broken through the front windscreen before jumping from the plane instead of leaving through the cockpit doors? It seems very unlikely. Foster took photographs and reported his findings to the authorities. The photographs Foster provided were of such poor quality that it was impossible to determine if they showed any aircraft at all, let alone G-AVTN. Some reports suggest that Foster declared he saw a red and white plane, which would have matched the design, and he even claimed to have read the registration number on the rudder. However, much later, Foster searched high and low for the wrecked plane again, but it was nowhere to be found. Somehow, a plane, a Cessna, had vanished from the previous location. That's weird. Everything about this case is weird. On an April day in 2004, three Royal Navy minesweepers, the HMS Pembroke, the HMS Penzance, and the HMS Iverness, were conducting a mine-locating operation in the Sound of Mull. During the training, they stumbled upon a plane wreck located near the spot Foster had suggested. It lay on the seabed about 100 feet beneath the ocean surface. Had they refound the plane wreckage? An underwater camera was used to look at the wreck, and initially it seemed like it could be from a Cessna plane. 
Unfortunately, bad weather prevented officials from reaching a confirmed identification from the photos. The discovery got significant press attention, but eventually it was revealed that this wreckage was really an RAF Royal Air Force Catalina flying boat that had gone missing during a military training mission back in 1945. Dang. So this wasn't Gibbs's plane. And the mystery continues without answers. Chapter 4, No Answers. What could have compelled Gibbs to take off into a dark night from a small airstrip with no working runway lights in the mountains? His ego. Very much. <laughs> and did he not realize that bad weather was forecasted shortly? This was a ridiculously foolish decision, regardless of his experience or his bravado. The allegation was that Gibbs had told Granger he would throttle back and jump out in the event of a catastrophe also seems outrageous. What experienced pilot would ever take off with plans to leap from the plane without a parachute at a moment's notice without knowing if they were even over land or water? It was pitch black after all, and parachuting was not an option here. So you expect us to believe that he intended to fly as slowly as possible before jumping out, not knowing whether he was above a mountain or the ocean. Please remember what my definition of pitch black in this situation is, okay? It's 10 o'clock at night. It's in Scotland. There's no moon. It is completely clouded over. Why is there it no is moon? Sleeting because it's the, the time of the month. Okay. So there's no moon, and even if there was a moon, the clouds had covered over it, and it was so bad that it was sleeting, and there was gusts of wind. Okay. The island had a hotel, which you pointed out, turned off their lights. Right. Okay. I'm so with where you. was there any light? I'm with you now. Yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying, because we're used to modern times where light pollution is horrible. In this case, there was no light. In fact, they're probably, the only light he probably had was what was in the cockpit with him, which was probably messing up his night vision. Right. And if he made it through the flight without any problems, this would only be due to good luck. If his idea was to prove that it was possible to take off and land in the dark at an airstrip that wasn't lit, it's ridiculous. Because this would not have proven anything. Right. A sensible pilot would never offer to do that. No one with any sense of responsibility would ever believe that such a night flight was safe and acceptable. It should only be used in an emergency, and it certainly wouldn't have helped establish his own hotel along with its own landing strip. Right. Then it got even more interesting as time has gone on. People have been speculating wildly about the purpose of Gibbs' true flight that night, and some of these theories are beyond amazing. For example, some believe that Peter was a smuggler who needed to escape with his loot. Others contend that it was actually a mission by MI5 and Gibbs was sent to Ireland or he was picking up someone from there. If Gibbs had any nefarious intentions, his plot would have been spoiled almost as soon as it began because within 35 minutes of him taking off, authorities were notified. It was almost like he wanted to ensure people noticed him leaving. Not something you want to do if you're a smuggler or a spy. True. 
he might as well have worn a sign saying, Come and get me, for all the attention he drew by taking off in the night. There is also speculation about whether Gibbs was actually the one who flew GAVTN that night. What? Well, remember, there are those who watched from the hotel that said it took longer than usual for the plane to warm up. And the lights were switched on and off multiple times before takeoff. Plus, remember the Howitt statement that they witnessed more than two uh, flashlights on the runway. Huh. This claims there might have been a third person who actually was the one who flew the GAVTN. But still, that doesn't say, well, where's he at? Okay. Well, what it does say is that Gibbs may have flew as a passenger and that the man who was actually flying the plane killed him and threw him out of the plane in midair. Ah. Was Gibbs murdered and his body later abandoned on a hill? This plays on his espionage theory and his World War II pilot history. Yeah. Regardless of the motives that led to the aircraft taking off in the night, there is no doubt that GAVTN began his journey and that Gibbs was involved. The only real question remains, what happened as soon as he was airborne? We may never have the complete answers to this mystery. I don't know. I mean, I've had thoughts along the way, and they keep getting shot down. <laughs> hey, I'm allowed. I like how you tied that in. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I have no... I, I'm still lost. I'm still... I'm still with him. I'm still lost. Well, he's been found, and he's buried. But what happened to him is still up in the air. And, in fact, he's the wreck is still... still up in the air. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. I know we're joking about it, but it's kind of to try and offset the real tragedy here of a man who lost his life. And we don't even know how he lost his life. We don't even know where his wreckage is, which might have answers to it. The wreckage that was originally found, they said, didn't even have wings or an engine. What happened to the engine? It just makes no sense at all. There is so much about this case that doesn't make sense. And since this happened back 1975, 76... I don't think we're ever really going to get answers. Well, it's not that long ago. 50 years? Hey, it's not, it hasn't been 50 years yet. Okay. Well, in three years, I can say it's been 50 years. Gosh, you're making me old. How do you think I feel? I'm older than you. Yeah, well. But before we go, I do want to remind everyone that we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the mole air mystery. Was it aliens? Was it espionage? You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your theories. We hope you enjoyed our story of the Mole Air Mystery, and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, explore those dark, shadowy places and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs>